Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science, a special series on the New Books Network with me, Nick Cheeseman, an Associate Professor at the Australian National University and series host. How do ordinary people deal with uncertainty in civil war? How do they decide whether and in what way to mobilise and for whom? With me to discuss these questions is Anastasia Shesternina, a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Sheffield and author of Mobilising in Uncertainty, Collective Identities and War in Abkhazia, published in 2021 by Cornell University Press and joint winner with Mona El-Gabashi's Bread and Freedom of the 2022 Charles Taylor Book Award, given annually by the Interpretive Methodologies and Methods Group of the American Political Science Association for the best book in political science that employs or develops interpretive methodologies and methods. Anastasia, congratulations on this exemplary new study in interpretive political science and on getting the Charles Taylor Award. Thanks so much, Nick. I'm still speechless and very excited to speak about the book. You begin the book, Anastasia, with an account of Georgian troops crossing into eastern Abkhazia in the southern Caucasus region adjacent to Russia on August 14, 1992. Thus, the war that is the subject of mobilizing in uncertainty began. Yet, people didn't know it at the time. In fact, the question on people's lips, including the Abkhaz fighters with whom you later spoke, was, was this a war? So how can people mobilize without knowing whether they're at war or not? That's precisely the question that I was asking. In fact, I started with a different question. I was puzzled by the mobilization, by the outcome of the mobilization of this relatively small group in a war against a much stronger state opponent. Not only were the Abhas at a disadvantage in manpower and arms when the Georgian Abhas War of 1992-93 began, but also intergroup clashes before the war in 1989 in Abhasia demonstrated the dominance of the Georgian group and the repressive capacity of the Georgian state to crash the Abhaz descent. And so when the war began, two researchers, two external observers, and potentially to even some future participants, it was really surprising that any Abhaz would have mobilized at all. The 93,000 Abhas did not stand a chance before the 240,000 Georgians in Abhasia and a 5 million strong Georgia. Moreover, Georgia inherited a large share of Soviet weapons in the South Caucasus, uh, whereas the Abhas did not have a comparable access to arms. And what we know now is that external support, foreign fighters and armaments certainly strengthened the Abhas force in the course of the war. But this support was not there at the beginning, when it wasn't even clear what the events entailed. And so I asked, why did individuals take these incredibly high risks to face the Georgian forces that crossed into Abkhazia on August 14th, 1992, as you mentioned, and encircled the territory in a span of a day. But what I realized when I actually started speaking with individuals in Abkhazia was that what characterized those days, the first days of the Georgian Abkhaz War of 1992-93, was intense uncertainty, people were 
shocked by the intrusion of Georgian troops. It was unclear what were their intentions. It was unclear what each individual or the groups that individuals were embedded in were supposed to do. The questions that people asked were, was this even a war? Who is threatened? By whom? And to what extent? And of course, most importantly, how to act in response. What became clear to me was that the starting point of our understanding as scholars, as observers of wars, of the outcome of the war's onset, perhaps misses an important point of this uncertainty that I uncovered through conversations with ordinary people in Abhazia. So why is it that the extant theories of civil war and of mobilization were not able to explain what happened. What are some of the prevailing theories that you point to to indicate how and why it was necessary for you to develop an alternative explanation? The approaches that exist in the study of mobilization, most of them start from the assumption of people's knowledge of the risks involved in any given situation. And of course, The risks involved in mobilizing for war are anticipated to be very high. And so these approaches expect then people to make cost-benefit calculations based on these risks to arrive at their mobilization decisions, whether to flee, hide, join any given group, or take any other action. But most people who spoke with me suggested that these risks were actually not well understood when Georgian forces entered Abhazia in August 1992. The Georgian advance ruptured everyday life in Abhazia. People told me over and over again that tanks entered all of a sudden. It was like thunder in the middle of a sunny day. And this posed with unprecedented urgency the questions that we spoke about whether this was a war, who was threatened, how to act in response. But going further in the approaches that exist, they could not capture the variation in mobilization decisions that people adopted. So the approaches that exist provide the historical, social, structural context of mobilization, but do not explain the differences in why is it that, let's say, highly politicized individuals, those who participated in the Georgian Abhas conflict before, actually fled, whereas others with no history of mobilization decided to join the much weaker Abhas side at the outset of the war. More specifically, the relative deprivation, the collective action approaches, did not explain why is it that people mobilized in such different ways, despite widespread grievances held by the Abhas and social pressures in this traditional strong community. On the other hand of the debate, security-seeking arguments, arguments that suggest that armed groups actually increase the safety of participants by offering skills and training, access to resources relative to non-participants, could tell us about why some Abhas fled, hid, or defected to the Georgian side, which was a rare outcome. But they struggle with those who joined, because the Abhas force at the outset of the war could not offer the skills and resources to participants that could increase their safety. And so the question remained, in this historical 
social, structural context where long-standing grievances existed among the APAs, where the APAs can be understood as a traditional strong community, and where the APAs side was at a disproportionate disadvantage militarily. Why in this context do we see such a large proportion of the APAs mobilizing? About a thousand APAs mobilized at the war's onset, and then up to 13% of the population mobilized in the course of the war, which is actually quite a large proportion of, of the group compared with other cases. And why is it that people took such different decisions, despite, let's say, similarities in background, despite similarities in prior activism and other factors that are typically associated with mobilization outcomes? Okay, so there's the puzzle in the political and social scientific literature. What about the literature on Abkhazia itself? Was there anything out of the existing literature on the territory on its history and people that would suggest that they may act in a way that would be contrary to what the um, political and social theory told us? Yeah, so this is another strand of the literature that I was really interested in exploring. And I found that once again, the careful attention to the voices of ordinary people who actually mobilized in different ways revealed so much about the dominant narratives that we have regarding this particular war and broader conflict, but also other cases in the region. What most research on the case emphasizes is the importance of external factors, external to the Abhas context, that is Georgian lack of discipline and Russian and foreign fighter support. And I show that these factors, once again, cannot explain mobilization at the war's onset when internal processes were central. And more so, they miss people's participation in the local dynamics that can turn the events in ways that these external uh, factors could not have shaped. At the beginning of the war, what we see is this moment when certainly APA's leaders could have calculated, let's say, whether Moscow would intervene or no. Because the precedent of Soviet troops intervention in Abkhazia existed. The Soviet troops stopped the violence in 1989. And as a result of this, perhaps, we didn't have the war developing at that time. Soviet troops, however, were disintegrating and and Russia was emerging from the dissolution of the Soviet Union and was in turmoil itself and in fact was split in terms of support for Georgia and Abkhazia, especially at the outset of the war. But for ordinary people, none of the individuals I had spoken with Actually, this was part of their decision-making process. Yes, some thought that maybe Soviet troops or the remnants of the Soviet troops could once again intervene and stop the potential bloodshed, given especially that in 1989, the situation was pretty dramatic for the Abhas side in the conflict when the Georgian and Abhas participants in the Georgian Abhas clashes of 1989 faced what could have become uh, an escalation of violence beyond low-scale clash that it ended up being. For the ordinary people instead, the concerns that they experienced were very immediate and quite intimate. People were at the beach, 
making jam. It was a warm summer day, and this routine that people were engaged in was disrupted dramatically by the entry of the Georgian troops. And so people were faced with the questions that we discussed before with unprecedented urgency, actually. And so for ordinary people, the process that this rupturing of everyday routines and expectancies set off really involved those that individuals trusted. And of course, this draws on the work of Lian Fuji, on the work of Mark Granovetter before, who suggests that when faced with extreme situations such as political violence and war, People turn to their immediate connections to make sense of the violence because violence can have different meanings. What this meant in Abhazia was that in in the first instance, people heard on the TV that the Georgian troops entered the territory. And this was the message of the national leader Arzenbach, who framed the Georgian advance as threatening to Abhazia as a whole. But This framing at the macro level was not the extent of the story. Had it been, we would probably have seen the majority of the Abhas mobilizing immediately thereafter. Instead, people went straight to the areas of local assembly where they trusted local figures such as local authorities, members of the uh, social movement organizations, and the elders, for instance. And it is in these local settings that this broader framing of the Georgian advance as indeed threatening, as an aggression, was adapted to the needs of local defense. And it is here that it became clear that a war had started. And the first indications of what needed to be done were articulated. But the story doesn't end here either. Even though local authorities were extremely important to this adaptation of national level frames to the local needs of defense, people made their mobilization decisions with very small groups of family and friends. And it is in this context that quite surprising findings emerged. I mentioned before that highly politicized individuals, those who were active participants in the Georgian Abhas conflict before the war, had been convinced by their families and friends to sometimes protect themselves or take the families away in in the literature. We, We would expect that those individuals would mobilize on behalf of the Abhas group. In contrast, those who had not really engaged as activists before the war, mobilized and sometimes did so to the areas of highest intensity fighting, once again through the conversations that they had with their close friends. And so what I found was that it wasn't simply manipulation of information by national level elite that we hear about when we think about how is it that what I call collective threat framing takes place. This process also involves highly important local and what Sarah Parkinson calls quotidian structures of family and friends. 
you've just mentioned collective threat framing, and that is one of the central conceptual contributions of the work. Tell us a bit more about how you did that conceptualizing out of the data that you generated through these extended interviews, asking questions of participants in the conflict themselves, how they understood the experiences that they had. The notion of collective threat framing, which is a mechanism that to me connects the historical and social foundations of mobilization, starts with the recognition that ordinary people experience intense uncertainty when violence and war break out in their communities. And why is that important? It is important because if we start from the point of uncertainty, we allow for a possibility of different perceptions of the situation of what to do to emerge. We need to ask then, how is it that people go from this intense uncertainty to a range of mobilization decisions. And this is where the intimate ties become so important. When faced with violence and war, people turn to trusted social structures. And these do not have to be simply structures of family. To me, these structures include also broader macro, meso, and also micro-level networks that people feel connected to by virtue of the history of the conflict that they have lived through, that they have been part of simply as a result of living in a particular locale. And if we think about this broader understanding of a person's embeddedness, it becomes clear why is it that certain narratives that circulate at the onset of violence and war resonate more with individuals than others. And so figuring out which narratives resonate or not requires understanding what kinds of prior experiences that people are exposed to might relate them powerfully to one another. If we think about how this maps onto the Abhas case, the history of the Georgian Abhas conflict that goes way back, we can start from the 19th century when the Russian Empire displaced most of the Abhas population from Abhasia. From that point on, the repopulation of Abhasia, the emergence of Abhasia as a Soviet Socialist Republic in 1921, but then the merging of this territory with Georgia in 1931 and just a decade after, and the massive repopulation, often forced repopulation, of various groups from Georgia to Abhasia started to create the conditions that the Abhas perceived as those of Georgianization of Abhasia, as conditions that would ultimately potentially lead to the dissolution of the Abhas in the Georgian mass. Associated with these political status and demographic changes were also changes in the attitude toward the Abhas, created by such policy choices as the closing of Abhas schools and prohibition of Abhas language, the kind of repression of cultural opportunities, opportunities to develop in the, let's say, artistic realm, which were the reforms of 1920s and 1940s that were later addressed. And in fact, we can say that there was even a counter trend of what some scholars call Abhasianization later down the road. But these memories positioned individuals in relation to the conflict in really important ways. 
But I wouldn't stop here because history and historical narratives as people relate them to me are only part of the story of how we can understand this question of how individuals go from the uncertainty to a range of mobilization decision in a context of a potentially starting war. The second part here, beyond these kind of shared understandings of the conflict and one's role in it, what I call collective conflict identities, is the social component. And that is, whom did individuals, ordinary people, observe fighting on behalf of their group? How did they mobilize before the war or simply experienced conflict in everyday life? And through this exercise of mapping various forms of what I call everyday confrontation, political contention, violent confrontation, we start to understand why is it that some social structures, particularly the national leadership of Abhazia rather than the Georgian counterpart within Abhazia or in Georgia, expressed the view of the Georgian advance that resonated with ordinary people in Abhazia much more than the counter-narratives of, for example, a policing action that were voiced in Georgia. We also start understanding why is it that the local leaders that I mentioned before become of such great importance, including in sometimes adapting what the national elite suggests to the needs of local defense. So whereas national leaders might, for instance, suggest that the mobilization has to take place mainly in the areas of potential highest intensity fighting, strategically important places like the capital. In this context, we can see the importance of this meso-level of adaptation of these broad macro-level frames to the protection of villages, towns, and cities, which sometimes draws resources away from areas of highest intensity fighting. These local leaders, as I also mentioned before, are deeply related to the, the struggle that underpins people's understandings of their history and how they relate to any given event. And so we see, for instance, leaders of the social movement uh, organization Aid Galera being very vocal at the war's onset about the need to organize defensive mobilization. But once again, if we think about how individuals experience conflict in everyday life through confrontations that span from derogatory language use to jokes to exclusion from customary gatherings to, let's say, conversational taboos, people do not experience these things usually with local leaders or national elite they do so in relatively small groups of family and friends. This is the power of the collective threat framing mechanism. On the one hand, it helps us understand why is it that certain narratives resonate whereas others do not, including in relation to the particular individuals who articulate these narratives. But it also helps understand why is it that people's ultimate decisions and sometimes very surprising decisions from the perspective of dominant approaches to mobilization actually emerge within 
these quotidian family friendship groups that experience conflict together and mobilize together and sometimes convince each other of uh, mobilization outcomes that otherwise would not have been predicted. That's tremendous. I think we'll pause here, Anastasia, and have a sponsor's message. And then when we come back, I'd like to ask you some questions about your own motivations, your research design, and connect some of what's in the book to recent events in Ukraine as well. Welcome back to New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science with me, Nick Cheeseman, in conversation with Anastasia Shesternina about mobilizing in uncertainty. Anastasia, before the break, we got a really good impression of the political and social scientific puzzles that you were grappling with, the historical specificity of the case with which you're working. What were your own motivations in this inquiry? Why was it that you were drawn to Akazia as a site in which to ask questions about mobilization? Why you of all people and why this particular conflict? To be honest, Nick, I think that the motivations for this work are emerging most sharply right now, given what's happening in Ukraine, where I was born and raised. And they are much more personal than I had ever been able to admit. And I knew that I was drawn to the post-Soviet space because of my background. But Perhaps only now I'm understanding the intensity of it and the impact that growing up surrounded by multiple mobilizations and wars that erupted in the post-Soviet space had on me as a scholar. And in fact, the first moment when I struggled with this question was when I was trying to figure out what my actual PhD research would be about. Of course, my original proposal to enter the PhD program at the University of British Columbia in Canada, where I lived for quite some time before then moving to the UK, was different. (laughs) But in the first years, I realized that there was something about the region that just could not let me go. And I also realized that the hot topics that I was thinking of pursuing originally were actually not what was driving me to this work. And it became very clear to me as soon as I started thinking through these motivations that what puzzled me the most was, why is it that people who could have been my neighbors would make these incredibly difficult decisions? And how is it that they have gone their lives through immense loss associated with the major historical changes that took place in the region. In terms of the justification of this particular case, this wasn't terribly difficult. I'm never shy of acknowledging that this work rests on the shoulders of giants. And one of them, Mark Beisinger, had really truly laid the foundation, having identified Abhazia as a case where mobilization should not have taken place for the reasons that we discussed before. I was extremely fortunate to have been able to conduct a number of Uh, field trips in order to first actually figure out the feasibility of this work, what were people willing to talk to me about, and 
what they didn't feel comfortable speaking about. And so, for instance, when I traveled to Apazia for the first time in 2010, having selected this case already, I understood that it was very difficult for people to talk about some of the patterns of post-war violence, but not so much about pre-war lives and lives through the war. And this certainly impacted the way in which my motivation also evolved. I found further puzzles. I found what what seemed to be really exciting uh, methodologically in terms of the differences across this relatively small territory, the territory is the size of Cyprus, where The differences between the west of Abkhazia that is proximate to Russia and the east that is proximate to Georgia, the differences in potential access to weapons were just very exciting to me. So those kinds of micro-comparative methodological motivations emerged in the process of research, in the process of designing this work. But what stayed clear was this urge to really try and get at something completely unfathomable. How is it that when faced with an unthinkable situation, one makes these incredibly difficult decisions? Doing field research on civil war can be notoriously tricky, even years after the fact of the war, as in the case of your research. How did you go about getting access and recruiting participants and ensuring the safety of everyone involved, yourself included? I think that the first really important decision here for me was to actually conduct the preliminary trip that I just mentioned and try and understand what was possible. Where was it that I might compromise my own safety or the safety of research participants? And this is what I learned in 2010. I learned that the areas in the East that were really interesting to me because of the particular conditions that these areas experienced during the war, they were simply not accessible and it would be unethical for me for reasons of my own safety and the safety of research participants, more importantly, to conduct my research there. So I had to be very creative. I had to find ways to address questions about those areas elsewhere. But the preliminary trip also suggested other decisions that I would have to make then coming back later in 2011, a year after, that would help me conduct this research in as ethical a way as possible. For example, locating gatekeepers who are trusted, being incredibly open with these individuals, members of mothers, veterans organizations, members of staff of museums related to the war, members of NGOs still working on various issues surrounding the Abhas struggle, even after the this horrendous outcome of the war, the displacement of most of the Georgian population from Abhasia and continued dependence on Russia, even after the recognition of Abhasia as a de facto state. And so having these individuals as a pillar of support and being extremely open with them, including about questions such as my plans to discuss these issues with participants in Georgia, with those displaced to Georgia, with Georgian intellectuals, I think that was one of the key first steps. And through these early, carefully established relations, And by deciding to, for example, not become affiliated with any 
given organization, because in, in this particular highly politicized environment, highly isolated environment, any kind of affiliation could potentially raise questions for potential future participants. I started to introduce myself as someone who is truly interested in the history of this particular conflict, the broader Georgian Abhas conflict in the war uh, specifically. It also was curious almost to me that the method that I chose, the life history interview method, resonated so much with individuals I had a chance to speak with as early as in 2010. And I thought that by observing what resonated, what did not, by really being attentive to the signs that I received in in that early engagement about what is dangerous and what is not, by basically developing what Edward Schatz calls ethnographic sensibility, I got a sense of the locally informed preconditions for this work that entered into my own ethical process. And as I had gone through this research, the gatekeepers I mentioned were the first um, individuals to introduce me to my early participants. But I also developed what I call targeted selection strategy because through conversations, what, what emerged was that some groups of people actually were never referred to me, such as individuals who had been protected during the war and were not really expected to mobilize or, or those who uh, used to be in militia, so the police force, and who were in a really challenging situation at the time. It became also clear to me that it was appropriate in this particular context to, for instance, approach individuals in their place of employment, uh, which might not be appropriate elsewhere. And that's why I'm stressing so much the local underpinnings of the ethical decisions that I made. And I continued exercising and kind of implementing these decisions on an ongoing basis. But as the project unfolded, I also started to understand some other elements of care that I had to apply and reflect on. And those were, for example, to make sure that I use the observations that I conducted in everyday life, in various events, weddings, celebrations, others, to inform the ways in which I conducted the live history interviews. So let me give you an example. It was quite common that women would speak on behalf of the men they lost uh, during the interview rather than exploring their own mobilization trajectories. And participating on multiple occasions in the coffee drinking and mourning that sometimes takes place alongside, I realized that, in fact, it was really important for me to continue the conversation about the men that women I spoke with had to engage in because it was part of the mourning process. And usually, as this conversation came to an end, we took a pause and we reflected on everything I had heard, on everything that the research participant shared with me, and could then explore themes that related to that particular research participant's own history. These kinds of ongoing ways of being attentive to everything I 
was absorbing as I lived in the different locales where I worked became part of the ethical practice. And it continued in similar ways going forward, because of course, as Lian Fuji teaches us, the ethics process is a process that takes place in the lifespan of our research. And so similar kind of observations and decisions were then made when I started analyzing the materials, when I started writing them up. You just mentioned gender as one dimension that was salient to your inquiry. What others were there? For instance, you distinguished between elite and ordinary participants at one point in the book and the roles that they played respectively in shaping pre-war conflict identities. So what's the distinction between those categories and what other categories were salient? And were they, to, to add to the question, are categories that emerged out of the interview context themselves or were they there are some that you brought with you, as it were, to the field site? I would like to explore this question in two ways. One, in terms of the categories themselves that made it into the continuum of mobilization that I explored. And second, in terms of the categories that emerged in the course of the interviews that I actually struggled to grapple with because of the emotional dynamics associated with them. And let me start with the latter and then turn to the former. What I noticed was that the relationship that I was establishing with different individuals varied so greatly, and sometimes to the extent that I couldn't understand if my moral priors were needed to be checked or <laughs> what, what was going on here. Because, of course, I was speaking with many people who participated in a range of events, pre-war, wartime, post-war, that had caused great harm to others. And yet, in many of these interviews, I empathized with the participants. In others, however, I was extremely afraid for various reasons because of the isolated nature of the case, as I mentioned before, um, because of the constant surveillance, because of the really challenging encounters that I had with the de facto military apparatus and others. And so this combination of empathy and fear was truly an enigma to me for quite some time. And I actually understood much later that part of what was going on there could actually be seen as a set of categories that I hadn't anticipated before. For those individuals for whom the war met them in their everyday life, ruptured that life and completely transformed it, who express dilemmas, vulnerabilities, who quite often actually also because of the empathetic, engaged listener quality that I managed to adopt with these individuals, engaged in questions that are quite challenging, questions of betrayal, regret, questions that were critical of the de facto APA state or, or even of the war effort, particularly because of the economic blockade that unfolded later down the road, the continued suffering for many of the people in Abhazia as well as those displaced to Georgia. And these people's dilemmas, I think, resonated with me because of the motivation that we discussed before. I think I could imagine my neighbor to have been in these shoes. On the other hand, with other individuals 
particularly those who continued participating in post-war violence. I obviously could not experience this kind of empathy and quite often I was really, really afraid. And so the category that emerged that I didn't anticipate and was much more kind of methodological for me was this way in which I differently related to people whose participation in post-war violence was, was so immediate as opposed to those whose dilemmas and participation are quite distant. In terms of the categories that we see conceptually with regard to mobilization, I have drawn once again on scholars I greatly admire, Roger Peterson, Sarah Parkinson, who have developed various continua of mobilization in civil war, from hiding, fleeing, to support apparatus, which Sarah Parkinson emphasizes in her work, to fighting. And I added different categories that emerged, which were locally specific as well. So for instance, the distinction between joining the support or fighting apparatus locally, as opposed to in areas of highest intensity fighting, such as the capital, but also, as you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, I think the most important addition to the literature was this question of whom mobilization was taken for. Was it to protect one's own safety? Was it to protect the family? Was it to defend the locality or the broader group or the entire population? And this categorization certainly emerged through the interviews. You mentioned continued suffering since the war. The book concentrates on the first few days of the war when, when mobilization was critical and uncertainty was prevalent. But I think for the sake of completeness, we should briefly discuss how the war ended and what the conditions have been since. In 2011, when the main field trip for this project took place, I observed war in almost every setting in Abhazia. In everyday life, people would integrate their wartime experiences into conversations, but also into the really important tradition of toast making, in the ways of memorialization that I noticed, I saw the presence of memory of the war on every corner uh, and within people's homes. So private memorials appeared in multiple homes that I had been invited to, memorials that were public were placed across Abhazia in key places and key locales and key areas. And you could almost not escape the war during my field work. In order to understand this, we need to understand how the post-war period was experienced by the individuals I, I worked with. Right after the war, what we saw is massive depopulation of Abkhazia, of course, as a result of the displacement of the Georgian population, most of it, from the territory. As a result of the depopulation, as a result of the various psychological processes that wars bring about and the economic challenges that emerged, there was rampant crime that characterized the first 
year or two of the post-war period. But while the crime subsided, systematic patterns of violence continued and did so in ways that were now from from this point of view not surprising, but at the time for me were, were quite surprising. Whereas in the war, the Abhas started off as an irregular force, as a force that was much weaker than its opponent. After the war, as the Abhas were guarding the territory, defending the border area between Georgia and Abhasia, Georgian groups became guerrilla groups. The tables had turned in a way. And the Abhas viewed their continued participation in this post-war setting as defending the wartime outcomes, the Abhas military victory in the war in September 1993, but also as defending their belonging to the territory, as defending their new status. Those activities took a tremendous amount of life in Abhasia. Um, There were mine laying, kidnapping, uh, ambushes, uh, particularly of Abhas patrols, but even of the peacekeepers, the Russian peacekeepers in particular, that were later stationed in the border area. And these kind of systematic patterns also unfolded into moments of renewed fighting in 1998, and of course in 2008 in the Kodori Gorge, and that is with great support from Russia. And so constantly in the post-war period, on top of the economic blockade that was imposed by the Commonwealth of Independent States and Abhazia, for the Abhaz participants in the events or just regular residents of Abhazia, there was a feeling of constant threat from Georgia. And this feeling disappeared, according to my research participants, with the recognition of Abhazia by Russia in 2008. But another set of challenges started, the deepening dependence on Russia and this constant struggle to maintain the decision-making capacity, to maintain this image of a potentially viable state. And in this context, of course, the memorialization practices that I mentioned became not only symbolic with regard to what happened in the past, but also a reminder of the continued implications of that war for the life, for everyday life of everybody who remained in Abhazia in the post-war period. Building on that and the fact that you've already alluded to that the book has become much more personal for you with the war in Ukraine, question in two parts. First of all, relating to the point about the upcoast dependence on Russia, what are the views there about the current war on Ukraine? Coming back to your own experiences and work, what lessons do you think your book might have for researchers who will now and in the future try to understand what's happening there? It's an extremely difficult balance with regard to your first question, not only because of the dependence on Russia, but also because of the perception that what is happening in Ukraine possibly could be interpreted as a similar situation that the Abhas had gone through, not in terms of the status, the political status 
in these two cases. But in terms of the history of the rejection of the national identity of the people that live in a particular territory by a larger opponent. And I think in this, the concerns that can be voiced from within Abkhazia at the moment make these parallels. But as I mentioned, this is a cautious balance, of course, because of the deepening and increasing dependence of Abkhazia on Russia over time. In terms of the lessons that the book might have for researchers of the Russian-Ukrainian war right now and others, the um, first months of the Russian attack were extremely personal for me. And one of the ways in which I started addressing that was to read as much as I could about ordinary people's experiences that were coming out from Ukraine. And what I noticed is that the challenges of ordinary people's decision-making under conditions of uncertainty were so vivid, even in this situation where, of course, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict didn't start this year. We have seen a long evolution, including with the annexation of Crimea, the armed conflict in Donbass, and now the latest episode. The episode of the scale that so many didn't expect that many people in Ukraine did not expect. And you see that from the reports of 24th to 26th of February, where before the invasion, Ukrainians had been divided on whether it was likely that Russia would initiate any kind of military action or not. Many people prepared in various ways, but the first days of the war were marked by a similar kind of uncertainty that I had found in Abkhazia. People watched the news of Russian troops in disbelief. They did not expect that this would be possible, and few Ukrainians believed that Kyiv in particular could be under fire. The quote that stuck with me was a family explaining how they came to realize the nature of the events after dismissing the explosions that they heard as something else. They said, we started listening to the news and well, now we understood that a war had started without access to people's firsthand stories and, and memories. I could not conclusively grasp this, but it was clear that to many, the decision of what to do thereafter was an extremely difficult one and a dilemma. Some people wanted to join the army, but had to protect their families and as a result took them away and vice versa. Once again, I would urge scholars to recognize the crucial role that uncertainty plays in making these decisions extremely difficult. In the time of this war, we have a president, a Ukrainian president, who's live streaming from his phone. There's a movement of information through the internet of a sort that didn't exist in the conflict that you studied. So how does the World Wide Web and its accoutrements affect our thinking about uncertainty and counterfactually how might it have made a difference to the mobilization back in 1992? Lisa Weedeen writes on uncertainty as a result of an excess of information in the high-speed information age. And I completely agree that the excess of information will pose quite different challenges. But I also think that even in the context of 
an extreme amount of data points that people are exposed to, they can still interpret the events differently. And their interpretations still will likely be based on their lived experiences of conflict before the events that they're facing and on how they come to make sense of these events with the closest people that they're surrounded with, with the networks that they're embedded in. And this is something that I turn to very briefly in the conclusion in the book, where I discuss the case of uh, Syria, based on the work of uh, Gilles Doronsoro, Adam Bashko, and others, who find similarly that even in the context of this high-speed, saturated information environment of 2011, similar processes took place where people turned to their close networks to figure out how to act in response to the events that could have been interpreted in different ways at the time. What I think is important here is to distinguish this moment of intense uncertainty that is present regardless of whether we are in the social media age or not, from the adaptation that necessarily people will undergo as they create new routines and expectancies, new norms. This is something that Anarhona demonstrates in Rebelocracy. Of course, the moment of the war's onset presents particular challenges to the individuals. And it is characterized by a different kind of uncertainty as this rupture of everyday life from the uncertainty of an ongoing conflict where people come to terms with how to live in this context and do so through interaction with each other, with armed actors and others involved. What about for yourself? You've written a marvelous book. It's an award winner. I think it's going to get a lot of attention, rightly and deservedly. Are you going to continue research on this topic of mobilization? Is Ukraine going to be a part of your ongoing inquiries? What's next for you? I am currently in the process of shaping a major new undertaking, uh, which is the Civil War Paths Project. It's a long-term seven-year project funded by the UK Research and Innovation Future Leaders Fellowship, where with a team of interdisciplinary researchers, we are thinking about how to apply one insight that we didn't really touch on today from the book, that is that we have to start seeing civil war in general as a social process, not as an isolated moment, but rather a process that starts from mobilization, organization before the war that positions people in different ways in, with regard to armed conflict and potentially even armed groups that emerge, that does so in different ways depending on whether there are social movements operating, whether it's an environment where the only way to launch a rebellion is a clandestine set of activities or, or where, for instance, uh, elite splinters are what drives mobilization and organization for war. These different ways in which wars start will, of course, shape the different relations that armed groups have with civilian, state, non-state, international actors involved. And as a team, we are continuing to develop the method of life history interview 
to get at how is it that we can think of the broader trajectories of civil war through the perspectives of the very participants involved in their lives and the transformations that they had experienced through their lives as as a result of being exposed to these processes. This moves me somewhat beyond mobilization, but mobilization remains a, a key part of this work. And I continue thinking of this as individual mobilization trajectories that are intertwined then with other kinds of dynamics of war, internal armed group politics, uh, conflictual and cooperative relations with state forces, violent and nonviolent relations with civilian populations, etc. One of the key concerns with questions of uncertainty, collective identities, social networks, and above all, meaning-making processes that people engage in will be at the heart uh, of this project and hopefully will make important contributions to the broader study of civil war. Well, congratulations on getting that prestigious grant and on what sounds like a tremendous project. I'm sure we'll hear more about it in coming years. Anastasia Shestrinina, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of New Books in Interpretive Political and Social Science to discuss mobilizing in uncertainty. Thanks so much, Nick. It was a great pleasure to share these reflections with you and our audience. Listeners, if this episode has been of interest to you, then why not check out some of the others on the series, like my discussion with last year's Charles Taylor Book Award winner, Diana Kim, on her Empires of Vice, or Jessica Sudogo and Ari Glass a few episodes ago, talking about Leanne Fuji's interviewing in social science research. You can find all of the episodes on the website and stream them wherever you get your podcasts via the new books in political science channel.